The Moonstone, section 33. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Moonstone, by Wilkie Collins. Section 33, Second Period, Third Narrative. Contributed by Franklin Blake. Chapter 1. In the spring of the year, 1849, I was wandering in the east, and had then recently altered the travelling plans which I had laid out some months before, and which I had communicated to my lawyer and my banker in London. This change made it necessary for me to send one of my servants to obtain my letters and remittances from the English consul in a certain city, which was no longer included as one of my resting-places in my new travelling scheme. The man was to join me again at an appointed place and time. An accident, for which he was not responsible, delayed him on his errand. For a week I and my people waited, and camped on the borders of a desert. At the end of that time the missing man made his appearance, with money and the letters, at the entrance of my tent. "'I am afraid I bring you bad news, sir,' he said, and pointed to one of the letters, which had a mourning border around it, and the address on which was in the handwriting of Mr. Bruff. I know nothing, in a case of this kind, so unendurable as suspense. The letter with the mourning border was the letter that I opened first. It informed me that my father was dead, and that I was heir to his great fortune. The wealth which had thus fallen into my hands brought its responsibilities with it, and Mr. Bruff entreated me to lose no time in returning to England. By daybreak the next morning I was on my way back to my own country. The picture presented of me by my old friend Betridge at the time of my departure from England is, as I think, a little overdrawn. He has, in his own quaint way, interpreted seriously one of his young mistress's many satirical references to my foreign education, and has persuaded himself that he actually saw those French, German, and Italian sides to my character which my lively cousin only professed to discover in jest, and which never had any real existence, except in our good friend Betridge's own brain. But, barring the drawback, I am bound to own that he has stated no more than the truth in representing me as wounded to the heart by Rachel's treatment, and as leaving England in the first keenness of suffering caused by the bitterest disappointment of my life. I went abroad resolved, if change and absence could help me, to forget her. It is, I am persuaded, no true view of human nature which denies that change and absence do help a man under these circumstances. They force his attention away from the exclusive contemplation of his own sorrow. I never forgot her, but the pang of remembrance lost its worst bitterness, little by little, as time, distance, and novelty interposed themselves more and more effectually between Rachel and me. On the other hand, it is no less certain that, with the act of turning homeward, the remedy which had gained its ground so steadily began now just as steadily to drop back. The nearer I drew to the country which she inhabited, and to the prospect of seeing her again, the more irresistibly her influence began to recover its hold on me. On leaving England she was the last person in the world whose name I would have suffered to pass my lips. On returning to England, she was the first person I inquired after, when Mr. Bruff and I met again. I was informed, of course, of all that had happened in my absence. 
in other words of all that has been related here in continuation of betridge's narrative one circumstance only being accepted mr bruff did not at that time feel himself at liberty to inform me of the motives which had privately influenced rachel and godfrey Ablewhite in recalling the marriage promise on either side i troubled him with no embarrassing questions on this delicate subject it was relief enough to me after the jealous disappointment caused by hearing that she had ever contemplated being godfrey's wife to know that reflection had convicted her of acting rashly and that she had effected her own release from her marriage engagement having heard the story of the past my next inquiries still inquiries after rachel advanced naturally to the present time under whose care had she been placed after leaving mr bruff's house and where was she living now she was living under the care of a widowed sister of the late sir john verinder one mrs meridew whom her mother's executors had requested to act as guardian and who had accepted the proposal they were reported to me as getting on together admirably well and as being now established for the season in mrs meridew's house in portland place half an hour after receiving this information i was on my way to portland place without having had the courage to own it to mr bruff the man who answered the door was not sure whether miss verinda was at home or not i sent him upstairs with my card as the speediest way of setting the question at breast the man came down again with an impenetrable face and informed me that miss verinda was out i might have suspected other people of purposely denying themselves to me but it was impossible to suspect rachel I left word that I would call again at six o'clock that evening. At six o'clock I was informed, for the second time, that Miss Verinder was not at home. Had any message been left for me? No message had been left for me. Had Miss Verinder not received my card? The servant begged my pardon. Miss Verinder had received it. The inference was too plain to be resisted. Rachel declined to see me. On my side, I declined to be treated in this way without making an attempt, at least, to discover the reason for it. I sent up my name to Mrs. Meridew and requested her to favour me with a personal interview at any hour which it might be most convenient to her to name. Mrs. Meridew made no difficulty about receiving me at once. I was shown into a comfortable little sitting-room and found myself in the presence of a comfortable little elderly lady. She was so good as to feel great regret and much surprise, entirely on my account. She was, at the same time, however, not in a position to offer me any explanation, or to press Rachel on a matter which appeared to relate to a question of private feeling alone. This was said over and over again, with a polite patience that nothing could tire, and this was all I gained by applying to Mrs. Meridew. My last chance was to write to Rachel. My servant took a letter to her the next day, with strict instructions to wait for an answer. The answer came back, literally, in one sentence. Miss Verinder begs to decline entering into any correspondence with Mr. Franklin Blake. Fond as I was of her, I felt indignantly the insult offered to me in that reply. Mr. Bruff came in to speak to me on business before I had recovered possession of myself. I dismissed the business on the spot, and laid the whole case before him. He proved to be as incapable of enlightening me as Mrs. Meridew herself. 
I asked him if any slander had been spoken of me in Rachel's hearing. Mr. Bruff was not aware of any slander of which I was the object. Had she referred to me in any way while she was staying under Mr. Bruff's roof? Never. Had she not so much as asked, during all my long absence, whether I was living or dead? No such question had ever passed her lips. I took out of my pocket-book the letter which poor Lady Verinder had written to me from Frizzing Hall on the day when I left her house in Yorkshire, and I pointed Mr. Bruff's attention to these two sentences in it. The valuable assistance which you rendered to the inquiry after the lost jewel is still an unpardoned offence in the present dreadful state of Rachel's mind. Moving blindfold in this matter, you have added to the burden of anxiety which she has had to bear by innocently threatening her secret with discovery through your exertions. Is it possible, I asked, that the feeling towards me which is there described is still as bitter as ever against me now? Mr. Bruff looked unaffectedly distressed. "'If you insist on an answer,' he said, "'I own I can place no other interpretation on her conduct than that.' I rang the bell, and directed my servant to pack my portmanteau, and to send out for a railway guide. Mr. Bruff asked, in astonishment, what I was going to do. "'I am going to Yorkshire,' I answered, "'by the next train.' "'May I ask for what purpose?' Mr. Bruff, the assistance I innocently rendered to the inquiry after the diamond was an unpardoned offence in Rachel's mind, nearly a year since, and it remains an unpardoned offence still. I won't accept that position. I am determined to find out the secret of her silence toward her mother, and her enmity toward me. If time, pains, and money can do it, I will lay my hand on the thief who took the moonstone. The worthy old gentleman attempted to remonstrate to induce me to listen to reason, to do his duty toward me, in short. I was deaf to everything that he could urge. No earthly consideration would, at that moment, have shaken the resolution that was in me. "'I shall take up the inquiry again,' I went on, at the point where I dropped it, and I shall follow it onward, step by step, till I come to the present time. There are missing links in the evidence, as I left it, which Gabriel Betridge can supply.' and to Gabriel Betridge I go. Toward sunset that evening I stood again on the well-remembered terrace, and looked once more at the peaceful old country house. The gardener was the first person whom I saw in the deserted grounds. He had left Betridge an hour since, sunning himself in the customary corner of the back yard. I knew it well, and I said I would go and seek him myself. I walked round by the familiar paths and passages, and looked in at the open gate of the yard. There he was, the dear old friend of the happy days that were never to come again. There he was, in the old corner, on the old beehive chair, with his pipe in his mouth, and his Robinson Crusoe on his lap, and his two friends, the dogs, dozing on either side of him. In the position in which I stood, my shadow was projected in front of me by the last slanting rays of the sun. Either the dogs saw it, or their keen scent informed them of my approach. They started up with a growl. Starting in his turn, the old man quieted them by a word, and then shaded his failing eyes with his hand, and looked inquiringly at the figure at the gate. My own eyes were full of tears. 
I was obliged to wait for a moment before I could trust myself to speak to him. Chapter 2 Betridge, I said, pointing to the well-remembered book on his knee, has Robinson Crusoe informed you this evening that he might expect to see Franklin Blake? By the Lord Harry, Mr. Franklin, cried the old man, that's exactly what Robinson Crusoe has done. He struggled to his feet with my assistance, and stood for a moment, looking backward and forward between Robinson Crusoe and me, apparently at a loss to discover which of us had surprised him most. The verdict ended in favour of the book. Holding it open before him in both hands, he surveyed the wonderful volume with a stare of unutterable anticipation, as if he expected to see Robinson Crusoe himself walk out of the pages and favour us with a personal interview. "'Here's the bit, Mr. Franklin,' he said, as soon as he had recovered the use of his speech. "'As I live by bread, sir, here's the bit I was reading the moment before you came in. Page 156, as follows. "'I stood like one thunderstruck, or as if I had been an apparition. "'If that isn't as much as to say, expect the sudden appearance of Mr. Franklin Blake. "'There's no meaning in the English language.' said Betridge, closing the book with a bang, and getting one of his hands free at last to take hold of the hand which I offered him. I had expected him, naturally enough under the circumstances, to overwhelm me with questions. But no, the hospitable impulse was the uppermost impulse in the old servant's mind, when a member of the family appeared, no matter how, as a visitor at the house. "'Walk in, Mr. Franklin,' he said, opening the door behind him with his quaint old-fashioned bow. "'I'll ask what brings you here afterwards. I must make you comfortable first. There have been sad changes since you went away. The house is shut up, and the servants are gone. Never mind that. I'll cook your dinner, and the gardener's wife will make your bed. And if there's a bottle of our famous Latour Claret left in the cellar, down your throat, Mr. Franklin, that bottle shall go. I bid you welcome, sir. I bid you heartily come.' said the poor old fellow, fighting manfully against the gloom of the deserted house, and receiving me with the sociable and courteous attention of the bygone time. It vexed me to disappoint him, but the house was Rachel's house now. Could I eat in it or sleep in it after what had happened in London? The commonest sense of self-respect forbade me, properly forbade me, to cross the threshold. I took Betridge by the arm and led him out into the garden. There was no help for it. I was obliged to tell him the truth. Between his attachment to Rachel and his attachment to me, he was sorely puzzled and distressed at the turn that things had taken. His opinion, when he expressed it, was given in his usual downright manner, and was agreeably redolent of the most positive philosophy I know, the philosophy of the Betridge school. "'Miss Rachel has her faults. I've never denied it,' he began and riding the high horse now and then is one of them. She has been trying to ride over you, and you have put up with it. Lord, Mr. Franklin, don't you know women by this time better than that? You have heard me talk of the late Mrs. Betridge. I had heard him talk of the late Mrs. Betridge pretty often, invariably producing her as his one undeniable example of the inbred frailty and perversity of the other sex. In that capacity he exhibited her now. "'Very well, Mr. Franklin. Now listen to me. 
different women have different ways of riding the eye horse the late mrs betridge took her exercise on that favorite female animal whenever i happened to deny her anything that she had set her heart on so as sure as i came home from my work on these occasions so sure was my wife to call up to me from the kitchen stairs and to say that after my brutal treatment of her she hadn't the heart to cook me my dinner i put up with it for some time just as you are putting up with it now for miss rachel at last my patience wore out i went downstairs and i took mrs betridge affectionately you understand up in my arms and carried her holus bolus into the best parlour where she received her company i said that's the right place for you my dear and so went back to the kitchen i locked myself in and took off my coat and turned up my shirt sleeves and cooked my own dinner when it was done i served it up in my best manner and enjoyed it most heartily i had my pipe and my drop of grog afterward and then i cleared the table and washed the crockery and cleaned the knives and the forks and put the things away and swept up the hearth when things were as bright and clean again as bright and clean could be i opened the door and let mrs betridge in i've had my dinner my dear i said and i hope you'll find i have left the kitchen all that your fondest wishes can desire for the rest of that woman's life, Mr. Franklin, I never had to cook my dinner again. Moral, you have to put up with Miss Rachel in London. Don't put up with her in Yorkshire. Come back to the house. Quite unanswerable. I could only assure my good friend that even his powers of persuasion were, in this case, thrown away on me. It is a lovely evening, I said. I shall walk to Frizzing Hall and stay at the hotel, and you must come tomorrow morning and breakfast with me. I have something to say to you. Betridge shook his head gravely. I am heartily sorry for this, he said. I had hoped, Mr. Franklin, to hear that things were all smooth and pleasant again between you and Miss Rachel. If you must have your own way, sir, he continued, after a moment's reflection, there is no need to go to Frizinghall tonight for a bed. It's to be had nearer than that. There's Hotherstone's farm, barely two miles from here. You can hardly object to that on Miss Rachel's account the old man added slyly otherstone lives mr franklin on his own free old i remembered the place the moment betridge mentioned it the farmhouse stood in a sheltered inland valley on the banks of the prettiest stream in that part of yorkshire and the farmer had a spare bedroom and parlour which he was accustomed to let to artists anglers and tourists in general a more agreeable place of abode during my stay in the neighbourhood i could not have wished to find are the rooms to let i inquired mrs otherstone herself sir asked for my good word to recommend the rooms yesterday i'll take them betridge with the greatest pleasure we went back to the yard in which i had left my travelling bag after putting a stick through the handle and swinging the bag over his shoulder betridge appeared to relapse into the bewilderment which my sudden appearance had caused when i surprised him in the beehive chair he looked incredulously at the house and then he wheeled about and looked more incredulously still at me. "'I've lived a goodish long time in the world,' said this best and dearest of all old servants. "'But the like of this I never did expect to see. There stands the house, and here stands Mr. Franklin Blake, and damn me if one of them isn't turning his back on the other and going to sleep in a lodging.' He led the way out, wagging his head and growling ominously. "'There's only one more miracle that can happen,' he said to me over his shoulder. 
The next thing you'll do, Mr. Franklin, will be to pay me back that seven and sixpence you borrowed of me when you were a boy. This stroke of sarcasm put him in a better humour with himself and with me. We left the house and passed through the lodge gates. Once clear of the grounds, the duties of hospitality, in Bettridge's code of morals, ceased, and the privileges of curiosity began. He dropped back so as to let me get on a level with him. "'Fine evening for a walk, Mr. Franklin,' he said, as if we had just accidentally encountered each other at that moment. "'Supposing you had gone to the hotel at Frizingall, sir?' "'Yes. Well, I should have had the honour of breakfasting with you to-morrow morning.' "'Come and breakfast with me at Otherstone's farm instead.' "'Much obliged to you for your kindness, Mr. Franklin, but it wasn't exactly breakfast that I was driving at. I think you mentioned that you had something to say to me. If it's no secret, sir,' said Bettridge, suddenly abandoning the crooked way and taking the straight one, "'I'm burning to know what brought you down here, if you please, in this sudden way.' "'What brought me here before?' I asked. "'The Moonstone, Mr. Franklin.' "'But what brings you now, sir?' "'The moonstone again, Bettridge.' The old man suddenly stood still, and looked at me in the grey twilight as if he suspected his own ears of deceiving him. "'If that's a joke, sir,' he said, "'I'm afraid I'm getting a little dull in my old age. I don't take it.' "'It's no joke,' I answered. "'I have come here to take up the inquiry which was dropped when I left England. I have come here to do what nobody has done yet.' to find out who took the diamond. "'Let the diamond be, Mr. Franklin. Take my advice and let the diamond be. That cursed Indian jewel has misguided everybody who has come near it. Don't waste your money and your temper, in the fine springtime of your life, sir, by meddling with the moonstone. How can you hope to succeed, save in your presence, when Sergeant Cuff himself made a mess of it?' "'Sergeant Cuff,' repeated Bettridge, shaking his forefinger at me sternly, the greatest policeman in England. My mind is made up, my old friend. Even Sergeant Cuff doesn't daunt me. By the by, I may want to speak to him sooner or later. Have you heard anything of him lately? The sergeant won't help you, Mr. Franklin. Why not? There has been an event, sir, in the police circles since he went away. The great Cuff has retired from business. He has got a little cottage at Dorking, and he's up to his eyes in the growing of roses. I have it in his own handwriting, Mr. Franklin. He has grown the white moss-rose without budding it on the dog-rose first, and Mr. Begby, the gardener, is to go to Dorking, and own that the sergeant has beaten him at last. It doesn't much matter, I said. I must do without Sergeant Cuff's help, and I must trust to you at starting. It is likely enough that I spoke rather carelessly. At any rate, Bettridge seemed to be piqued by something in the reply which I had just made to him. "'You might trust a worse than me, Mr. Franklin, I can tell you that,' he said, a little sharply. The tone in which he retorted, and a certain disturbance after he had spoken, which I detected in his manner, suggested to me that he was possessed of some information which he hesitated to communicate. "'I expect you to help me,' I said, "'Picking up the fragments of evidence which Sergeant Cuff has left behind him. "'I know you can do that. Can you do no more?' "'What more can you expect from me, sir?' asked Bettridge, with an appearance of the utmost humility. "'I expect more from what you just said now.' "'Mere boasting, Mr. Franklin,' returned the old man, obstinately. 
Some people are born boasters. They never get over it to their dying day. I'm one of them. There was only one way to take with him. I appealed to his interest in Rachel and his interest in me. Betridge, would you be glad to hear that Rachel and I were good friends again? I have served your family, sir, to mighty little purpose, if you doubt it. Do you remember how Rachel treated me before I left England? As well as if it were yesterday. My lady herself wrote you a letter about it, and you were so good as to show the letter to me. It said that Miss Rachel was mortally offended with you for the part you had taken in trying to recover her jewel, and neither my lady nor you or anybody else could guess why. Quite true, Betridge, and I come back from my travels and find her mortally offended with me still. I knew that the diamond was at the bottom of it last year, and I know that the diamond is at the bottom of it now. I have tried to speak to her, and she won't see me. I have tried to write to her, and she won't answer me. How, in heaven's name, am I to clear the matter up? The chance of searching into the loss of the moonstone is the one chance of inquiry that Rachel herself has left me. Those words evidently put the case before him, as he had not seen it yet. He asked a question which satisfied me that I had shaken him. There is no ill-feeling in this, Mr. Franklin, on your side, is there? There was some anger, I answered, when I left London, but that is all worn out now. I want to make Rachel come to an understanding with me, and I want nothing more. You don't feel any fear, sir, supposing you make any discoveries in regard to what you may find out about Miss Rachel. I understood the jealous belief in his young mistress which prompted those words. I am as certain of her as you are, I answered. The fullest disclosure of her secret will reveal nothing that can alter her place in your estimation or in mine. Betridge's last left scruples vanished at that. If I am doing wrong to help you, Mr. Franklin, he exclaimed, all I can say is, I am as innocent of seeing it as the babe unborn. I can put you on the road to discovery, if you can only go on by yourself. You remember that poor girl of ours, Rosanna Spearman? Of course. You always thought she had some sort of confession in regard to the matter of the moonstone which she wanted to make to you. I certainly couldn't account for her strange conduct in any other way. You may set that doubt at rest, Mr. Franklin, whenever you please. It was my turn to come to a standstill now. I tried vainly in the gathering darkness to see his face. In the surprise of the moment, I asked a little impatiently what he meant. "'Steady, sir,' proceeded Betridge. "'I mean what I say. Rosanna Spearman left a sealed letter behind her, a letter addressed to you.' "'Where is it?' "'In the possession of a friend of hers at Cobb's Ole. You must have heard tell, when you were here last, sir, of Limpin' Lucy, a lame girl with a crutch.' "'The fisherman's daughter.' "'The same, Mr. Franklin.' Why wasn't the letter forwarded to me? Limping Lucy has a will of her own, sir. She wouldn't give it to any end but yours, and you had left England before I could write to you. Let's go back, Betridge, and get it at once. Too late, sir, tonight. There are great savers of candles along our coast. They go to bed early at Cobb's Hole. Nonsense. We might get there in half an hour. You might, sir, and when you did get there you would find the door locked. He pointed to a light glimmering below us, and at the same moment I heard through the stillness of the evening the bubbling of a stream. 
"'There's the farm, Mr. Franklin. Make yourself comfortable for to-night, and come to me to-morrow morning, if you'll be so kind. You will go with me to the fisherman's cottage. Yes, sir. Early. As early, Mr. Franklin, as you like.' We descended the path that led to the farm. End of section 33